Well, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Genesis chapter 36. Uh, Genesis chapter 36 for our time of study in the Word. Uh, this morning, we're going to be uh, looking at the entirety of the chapter, Genesis 36, 1 through 43. And the title of the message this morning is The Rise of Esau in Edom. The Rise of Esau in Edom. How many of you actually read or just looked at Genesis 36 prior to coming this morning? Okay, great. Um, and you still came to church. It's, uh, I'm impressed that you came this morning, but I'm confident that this chapter will reward you for uh, coming uh, this morning. Genesis 36 is more than just a, a bunch of information that is thrown together about Esau uh, it's a wonderfully instructive chapter that is loaded with meaning and insight for the people of Israel, the original readers of this chapter, and for us uh, today. If you want to know the purpose of the chapter, all you have to do is read five key statements that show up uh, through the length of the chapter from the first verse all the way through to the last verse in the chapter. Verse 1 reads, now these are the records of the generations of Esau, that is Edom. Verse 8 ends with the words, Esau is Edom. In verse 9, we have mention of Esau, the father of the Edomites. In verse 19, we find the words Esau, that is Edom. In verse 43, we see the words Esau, the father of the Edomites. There's also a huge emphasis on land in this chapter. If I did my math right, I believe the word land shows up 12 times in this chapter. Hill country shows up a couple times in this chapter. Esau starts the chapter in the land of Canaan, but then he moves to the hill country of Seir, which ends up becoming, over time, the land of Edom. The chapter ends by speaking about the descendants of Esau as chiefs of Edom in the land of their possession, indicating that it was God's providential plan for Esau's descendants to have this land, which became the land of their possession. You put all these statements together, and you realize that what we have in this chapter is the story or the explanation of how it came about that Esau became the father of the Edomite people in the land of his possession, which was the area south of the Dead Sea, as you see on the map. Genesis 36, it might interest you to know, is one of the longest chapters in Genesis, and it chronicles what happens to Esau and his descendants over about a 400-year span, all the way up to Moses' day as he's writing the book of Genesis. As one writer says, Genesis 36 is the story of how it pleased the Almighty to bless Esau and to make him to become a great nation. So that's what we're going to see in this chapter but let's be honest as we begin this morning. Most of us are not interested in Esau or his descendants. We're interested in Jacob and in Jacob's descendants. And most of us would prefer to skip right over Genesis 36 and get on to Genesis 37 with the story of Joseph, right? And if you feel that way at all this morning, then you are perfectly positioned to appreciate at least some of how the original readers of Genesis would have felt when they came to Genesis 36. Imagine being an Israelite about to enter the land of Canaan and hearing this chapter being read to you at a time when you are not feeling warm and fuzzy toward Esau's descendants right now, and for good reason. No sooner had the children of Israel crossed the Red Sea that they were attacked 
by descendants of a grandson of Esau in a horrible way. A grandson of Esau mentioned in this very chapter to add insult to injury when Moses politely approaches the king of Edom in Numbers 20 and seeks permission for Israel to pass through Edomite territory on their way to the promised land, the people of Edom and the king refused and even threatened military action against Israel if they dared to even try. So imagine experiencing these attacks and this rudeness from Esau's descendants, the Edomites, And then you have to stand with your family and hear Genesis 36 being read. A chapter in which God provides a very respectful treatment of the history of Esau's descendants in Edom. That's the experience of the Israelites having to listen to this long chapter of Genesis 36. All things considered, Moses is intentionally doing something that is profoundly instructive to the people of Israel. As one writer says, he says, the the breadth of interest on Moses' part is worthy of emulation. For though Edom had indeed begun to display its animosity quite fully at Moses' time, Moses believed that it behooved Israel to have a genuine interest in this brother race. There's a large heartedness here that Moses displays in this chapter that is far more humane than what the Edomite people had displayed toward Israel. And Moses is calling the Israelites into this large hearted perspective here in this chapter. To appreciate the chapter, we have to do a very quick review. I hope you don't mind this. It's been a while since we've been in the book of Genesis. Esau, as many of you will recall, is the older twin brother of Jacob. They are both grandsons of Abraham, through whom God had promised to bring blessing to all of the nations of the earth. Before Uh, Jacob and Esau were born, God spoke to Rebekah in Genesis 25, 23. You might want to write that reference down. Genesis 25, 23. And he said to Rebekah, two nations are in your womb and two people shall be separated from your body. And one people shall be stronger than the other and the older shall serve the younger. So obviously it's going to be very important who's going to be born first, given that prophecy Well, we learned that Esau ended up being born first and his younger brother Jacob was born second, but he came out holding on to Esau's heel. As the firstborn son of Isaac, Esau would normally be entitled to the birthright and the blessing that would make him the heir of the promise of Abraham. But we saw in Genesis 25 how Esau comes in from the field one day and sees Jacob cooking some red stew. And he literally says to Jacob, this is literally how the Hebrew reads, please give me a swallow of that red stuff, the red stuff. And we all know that Esau traded away his birthright for some of that red stuff, which is why Genesis twenty-five thirty goes on to say, therefore, his name was called Edom which means red. He had said to Jacob, please give me a swallow of the Adom, the Edom. And therefore he's called Edom. Years later, when when Isaac went to give Esau the blessing of firstborn, Jacob exploited his father's blindness and disguised himself as Esau so that his father pronounced the blessing on Jacob instead of upon Esau. And Esau, when he discovered this, was so angry over what Jacob had done that he resolved to kill Jacob. So Jacob fled for his life to Haran, hundreds of miles away, and lived there for 20 years. After marrying Leah and Rachel and having 12 children, Jacob begins his journey back to Canaan at God's command. He and Esau, we saw, have an epic meeting south of the Jabbok River. 
And Esau shows Jacob tremendous kindness and grace and hospitality and forgiveness and greets his brother who had wronged him with open arms. Esau even invites Jacob to come and stay with him at Seir, south of the Dead Sea. But Jacob essentially refuses and heads into the land of Canaan and eventually returns to his father in Hebron. That's where we've left off. After Jacob stole Esau's blessing, Esau begged his father to give him whatever blessing was left, saying, don't you have any blessing left for me? So Isaac reaches down, way down deep into the bottom of the barrel and pulls up the only blessing that was left for Esau. Listen to what he says to Esau in Genesis 27, 39, and 40. He says, Behold, away from the fertility of the earth shall be your dwelling, and away from the dew of heaven from above. And by your sword you shall live, and your brother you shall serve. But it shall come about when you become restless that you shall break his yoke from your neck. Imagine Esau's disappointment upon hearing these words. No wonder Esau wanted to kill Jacob after this. Yet we learn in Genesis 36, the chapter we're going to look at today, that there was still considerable blessing inside these words for Jacob. Here's how we're going to break down our study of this chapter. Six developments that we'll observe in the story of how Esau became the father of the Edomite people in the land of his possession. And the first of these developments is that Esau takes wives and has sons in the land of Canaan. Observe what is said beginning in verse 1 regarding Esau's marriages. Now these are the records of the generations of Esau, that is, Edom, Esau took his wives from the daughters of Canaan, Ada, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and Ohalibamah, the daughter of Enah, and the granddaughter of Zibion, the Hivite. Also, Basemat, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebaioth. We learned earlier in Genesis that Esau's first two wives were grief to Isaac and to Rebekah, but Moses has no intention of bringing any of that up here. I should also note that all three of the names of Esau's wives that are mentioned here in Genesis 36 are different from the names that are mentioned earlier in the Genesis account, and this is probably because back in this day, people often went by more than one name. We see this with Jacob, who is sometimes called Israel, and even Esau himself is called both Esau and Edom in Genesis 36. Evidently, Esau's wives ended up being known by these other names, which Moses uses here in Genesis 36. Anyway, from Esau's marriages come children. Observe what is said beginning in verse 4 through verse 5. Ada bore Eliphaz to Esau, and Basemot bore Reuel, and Ohalibamah bore Jeush, and Jalam, and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. According to Isaac's blessing and God's revealed will, Jacob is the one who's supposed to inherit the land of Canaan, And Esau is the one who's destined to live elsewhere. Yet for the first 20 years after Isaac's words of blessing are spoken over his two sons, Jacob is the one living outside of the land of Canaan and having his children up in Haran. And Esau is the one living in the land of Canaan and having his children in Canaan. Any observer at this point of the narrative would have thought that the blessings that Isaac had spoken over Jacob and Esau were getting reversed somehow. And one might imagine that Esau would have been tempted to begin to think that maybe my dad's words were wrong and maybe I'm going to be the son who gets the land of Canaan after all. 
But this is not what ends up happening. As we have seen after a 20-year absence, Jacob returns to Canaan with all of his possessions and his family. And this sets events in motion that lead to Esau's complete departure from the land of Canaan. And this brings us to the second development in the story of Esau becoming the father of the Edomite people. Development number two, Esau moves away from the land of Canaan and settles in the country, the hill country of Seir. Observe what happens in verse six. And if you're paying attention, what's said here should surprise you. Look at verse six. Then Esau took his wives and his sons and his daughters and all his household and his livestock and all his cattle and all his goods, which he had acquired in the land of Canaan and went to another land away from his brother Jacob for their property had become too great for them to live together. And the land where they sojourned could not sustain them because of their livestock. So Esau lived in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom, don't forget. Does anything that is said here surprise you? Based on what we've learned earlier in the book of Genesis and even the review that we just had a few minutes ago, it should surprise you because when Jacob returns to Canaan back in Genesis 32, Esau, it seems, was already living in Seir. In Genesis 32, 3, we're told that as Jacob is returning to Canaan, he sent messengers before him to his brother in the land of what? Seir. When Jacob essentially declines Esau's invitation to come live with him, we're told that Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. So it seems that Esau is already living in the country of Seir when Jacob first returns to the land of Canaan after his 20 years in Haran. Yet here in Genesis 36 that we're looking at today, we have Esau packing up and leaving the land of Canaan after Jacob returns. When Esau realizes that the land of Canaan is not big enough for the two of them. How do we explain this? Actually, the explanation is probably fairly simple. Uh, though Esau was physically located in Seir, the moment that Jacob returned to the land of Canaan, ancient Jewish interpreters suggest that Esau still had many possessions in the land of Canaan and that he lived, and I quote, as a nomad wandering over an area that covered both Canaan and Seir until his permanent settlement in Seir. So think of Esau as having a dual residency up until this moment in Genesis 36, when Esau finally gathers up all of his stuff and makes a complete move away from Canaan to the land of Seir. When he realizes that the land is not big enough for him and for Jacob because of how blessed both he and Jacob have been with flocks and herds and possessions that God had blessed both Esau and Jacob with. This move has the feel of being an honorable gesture on Esau's part. Esau could have fought against Jacob and insisted that Jacob be the one who has to leave the land of Canaan. But Esau doesn't do that, which seems to show that Esau had come to a place in his life where he accepted his brother's God-given right to the land of Canaan. As R. Kent Hughes says, all this was done with the grace and magnanimity that had come to characterize Esau. There was no hassling over property. Esau is viewed kindly here as a relative who walked out of the line of promise in order to clear the path for Jacob. Another writer says it this way, Esau departs from Canaan with an amiable, common sense view of things, not in anger or resentment. So Esau moves away from the land of Canaan to the country of Seir, 
But he doesn't just live there. His family grows there. And this brings us to the next development in this story of Esau becoming the father of the Edomite people in the land of his possession. And let's word this point this way. Esau has grandchildren in the hill country of Seir. Observe the record of the grandsons who were born to Esau. Verse 9, these then are the records of the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites in the hill country of Seir. These are the names of Esau's sons, Eliphaz, the son of Esau's wife, Ada, Ruel, the son of Esau's wife, Basemoth. The sons of Eliphaz were Taman, Omar, Zepho, and Gatam, and Kenaz. Timnah was a concubine of Esau's son, Eliphaz, and she bore Amalek to Eliphaz. These are the sons, or some translations say these are the grandsons of Esau's wife, Ada. Verse 13, these are the sons of Ruel, Nahath, and Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. These were the sons, or as some translations say, the grandsons of Esau's wife, Basemoth. These were the sons, verse 14, of Esau's wife, Ohelibamah, the daughter of Enah, and the granddaughter of Zibion. She bore to Esau, Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. You'll notice that a woman named Timnah is mentioned in verse 12, who is said to be a concubine of Esau's son, Eliphaz. Later in this chapter, we're going to be told in verses 20 through 22 that Timnah is the daughter of a man named Seir, who is the prominent patriarch of this region. And the key reason that Timnah is mentioned here in this passage is because of the child that she gives birth to, whose name is Amalek. And the descendants of Amalek ended up being a major thorn in the side of the Israelites for centuries to come. It will be the Amalekites who will attack the Israelites in the wilderness after they had come through the Red Sea when they were wearied and tired and vulnerable from their journey. And we find that in Exodus 17. It will be the Amalekites whom the Israelites will have to go to war against first after they enter the wilderness. Before the children of Israel enter the land of Canaan, Moses is going to command the Israelites to never forget what Amalek and his descendants did to them. And he says to them in Deuteronomy 25, 19, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Don't forget what Amalek has done to you. Unfortunately, the Israelites will not carry through on this command from God through Moses. Centuries later, God is going to tell King Saul, Wipe them out. Wipe out the Amalekites for what they did and all of their livestock, including their king. And as many of you know, Saul will not completely obey God. He will leave their king, whose name was Agag, alive. And when Samuel hears news that Agag was left alive, Samuel himself will grab a sword and cut Agag to pieces. Evidently, though, one of Agag's sons survives the slaughter and his lineage continued for another 500 years into the days of Queen Esther in Persia when a descendant of Agag named Haman, the Agagite, tries to connive to exterminate the Jewish people during their Persian captivity. And all of that mess starts here in Genesis 36, where we learn that Amalek, the father of the Amalekites, was born to Eliphaz and Timnah, making him a grandson of Esau. Getting back into the flow of Genesis 36, we see Esau living now in Seir and having children and grandchildren. And the story doesn't stop there. 
Esau's family continues to grow in number and in power in the region of Seir. And this leads us to the next development in the story of how Esau became the father of the Edomites in the land of his possession. Let's word it this way. Esau's sons and grandsons rise to power and become chieftains in the land of Edom. Some of your translations have the word dukes. We're using the word chieftains. As I, as I read verses 15 through 19 to you, I want you to make note how often you see the word chiefs or chief. The Hebrew word that is translated chief is the word aluf, which is related to the Hebrew word for thousand, which is aleph, which would mean that these men had oversight or lordship over roughly a thousand people, or as some commentators would suggest, over a thousand families. So when you see the word chief, think ruler over a thousand And the point of these verses is to show how quickly Esau's descendants ascended to positions of power among the people of Seir. Observe what is said beginning in verse 15. These are the chiefs of the sons of Esau, the sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn of Esau, or chief Taman, chief Omar, chief Zepho, chief Kenaz, Chief Korah, Chief Gatam, Chief Amalek. These are the chiefs descended from Eliphaz in the land of Edom. These are the sons, or it could be translated, these are the descendants of Ada. Verse 17. These are the sons of Ruel, Esau's son. Chief Nahath, Chief Zerah, Chief Shammah, Chief Mizah. These are the chiefs descended from Ruel in the land of Edom. These are the sons or the descendants of Esau's wife, Basemoth. Verse 18, these are the sons of Esau's wife, Ohalibama, Chief Jeush, Chief Jalam, Chief Korah. These are the chiefs descended from Esau's wife, Ohalibama, the daughter of Enah. These are the sons of Esau. That is Edom, you know, and these are their chiefs. Keep in mind that this is the story of how Esau became the father of the Edomites in the region of Seir. We see his grandsons rising to prominence in this region. But you will notice that Esau's sons, through his wife, Ohalibama, rise to power more quickly and become chiefs in their own right. Otherwise, it's grandsons, but it's the sons of his wife, Ohalibama, that are already chiefs. And one could read this and be left asking how Esau's family could rise to such prominence so quickly, especially how his sons, through his wife, Ohalibama, became chiefs right away. But this brings us to the next development in the story of how Esau became the father of the Edomite people in the land of his possession. This is kind of a parenthesis. It's not necessarily the next thing that happens. It's an explanation for that to answer the question of how Esau rose to power so quickly. So the fifth development is in marrying Ohalibama. Esau married into a family of chieftains in the land of Edom. The narrator has already told us that Esau is married to a woman named Ohalibama and that her sons became chieftains in this region. So now the narrator backs up here to provide a context for that in order to let us know that in marrying this woman, Esau was marrying into a leading family in this region, the family of Seir. Observe what is said, starting in verse 20. These are the sons of Seir, the Horite. This guy was the major patriarch of this region. The inhabitants of the land, Lotan 
and Shobal and Zibion and Anah and Dishon and Ezer and Dishon. Imagine having sons by the name of Dishon and Dishon. These are the chiefs descended from the Horites, the sons of Seir in the land of Edom. So notice that one of the sons of Seir was a guy named Zibion. Keep that thought in your mind for a few minutes. The narrator continues in verse 22. The sons of Lotan were Hori and Hamam. And Lotan's sister was Timnah, whom we learned about earlier in this chapter. Verse 23, these are the sons of Shobal, Alvan, and Menahath, and Ebal, Shepho, and Onam. These are the sons of Zibion, Ayah, and Anah. And in case you were wondering, this is the Anah who found the hot springs in the wilderness when he was pasturing the donkeys of his father, Zibion. Notice that one of the sons of Zibion is a man named Enah. He is significant for a couple of reasons, one of which we're told here in verse 24 that he's the man who found what the New American Standard translators say are hot springs in the wilderness The Hebrew word that is translated hot springs only shows up in this passage in the Hebrew Bible. And I have to tell you that there is a tremendous amount of uncertainty about its meaning. Consistent with Jewish tradition, the King James Version understands this word as mules. How many of you have translations that have the word mules here? Raise your hand. There's no shame. Okay, if you... I see those hands. Uh, The New King James translates this word as water. The Latin Vulgate in the New American Standard and the New International Version and the English Standard Version translates the word as hot springs. Others suggest that this word means vipers, while others suggest that it means fish. Go figure. The Greek Septuagint, when I saw these varieties, I was like excited to go to the Greek Septuagint to find out what these ancient translators, how they interpreted the word. And to my dismay, I observed that they just took the Hebrew word and transliterated it into Greek and said, that's what he found. And you figure out what it is. So whatever it was that Anah discovered, it was a big deal. What exactly was it? It was something. (laughs) We're told something else about Anah in verse 25, and that is the children that he had. Look at verse uh, 25. These are the children of Anah, Dishon and Ohalibama, the daughter of Anah. In other words, she's the daughter of Anah, whom I referred to earlier that Esau had married. That's what Moses is saying here. As for the other sons of Seir and their children were told the following, and notice how many of them became chiefs in verse 26 and following. These are the sons of Dishon, Himdan and Eshban and Ithron and Sharon. These are the sons of Ezer, Bilhan and Za'avan and Achan. These are the sons of Dishon, Uz, and Aaron. Verse 29, these are the chiefs descended from the Horites, Chief Lotan, Chief Shobal, Chief Zibion, Chief Anah, Chief Dishon, Chief Ezer, Chief Dishon. These are the chiefs descended from the Horites according to their various chiefs in the land of Seir. Notice how many chieftains or dukes come from this family which clearly demonstrates that this is a powerful family. And notice that a woman named Ohalibama is a part of this powerful family as the great-granddaughter of Seir. She's the granddaughter of Chief Zibion and the daughter of Chief Anah. 
And this happens to be the woman that Esau married. So you can see how Esau's marriage to her positions him and his family to just kind of blend right in to the life of the people of Seir and have access to the halls of power in this region such that Esau's own sons and grandsons would all become chiefs in their own right. To the people of this region, this would have only initially seemed natural. Over time, though, Esau's descendants prevailed to such an extent that Esau is the one who became known as the father of the Edomites. Because Esau is Edom, you know. As time goes by and things evolve, the system of government in this region morphed into a more unified government ruled over by a series of kings. Starting in verse 31, Moses provides us an amazing lineage of kings in the land of Edom from earlier times all the way up to the present moment that Moses is writing this book. These are kings, some or all of whom would have descended from Esau himself. And this leads us to the final development in this account of how Esau became the father of the Edomites in the land of his possession. Number six, Esau's descendants become kings and chiefs in the land of Edom. This land is now known as Edom. Observe what is said beginning in verse 31. Now, these are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the sons of Israel. Verse 32, Bela, the son of Beor, reigned in Edom, and the name of his city was Denhabah. Then Bela died, and Jobab, the Hebrew is Yobab, Jobab, the son of Zerah of Basra, became king in his place. Verse 34, then Jobab died, and Hashem of the land of Temanites became king in his place. Then Hashem died, and Hadad, the son of Bedad, who defeated Midian in the field of Moab, became king in his place. And the name of the city was Avit. Then Hadad died, and Samla of Masrachah became king in his place. Then Samla died, and Shaul of Rehoboth on the Euphrates River became king in his place. Then Shaul died, and Baal Hanan, the son of Akbor, became king in his place. Then Baal Hanan, the son of Akbor, died, and Hadar became king in his place. And the name of his city was Pau, and his wife's name was Mehetabel, the daughter of Matred, daughter of Mezahab. The reason, by the way, the last king, Hadar, is not said to have died is because he's the king reigning at the time that Moses is writing. So this would have been the king who denied Moses and the children of Israel entrance or access to their roadways as they traveled to the land of promise. Remember that back in Genesis chapter 16 or 17, verse 16, that God had told Abraham that he would bless Sarah and that kings of people shall come from her. And we actually are seeing some fulfillment of that here in Genesis 36. Esau is Sarah's grandson and a number of Esau's descendants became kings over the people of Edom. God had also promised Jacob that kings would come forth from him too. But we see this promise coming true for Esau before it comes true for Jacob. By the way, commentators notice something pretty impressive about this list of kings. They notice that every king dies before the other one takes his place. And no one's son seems to take his father's place on the throne. It also seems that no king conquers the preceding king. That's actually remarkable in this day and age. As one commentator says, from this it is unquestionably obvious that the sovereignty was elective rather than by force or hereditary. 
The whole picture here is of a peaceful succession of kings over a long period of time, probably being chosen by the vote of the chieftains who ruled over the people. And this peaceful succession of kings is a remarkable political achievement that is worthy of admiration. Sadly, though, notice in verse 38 that one of the kings is named Baal Hanan, which literally means Baal is gracious. A name like this shows that this is at least not at this particular point a God-honoring society, but it had become an idolatrous society. But notice how Moses begins this section in verse 31. He says, these are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the sons of Israel. It's going to be another 350 years from the time of Moses before Israel has their first king. But God had told Moses in Deuteronomy 17 that a day would come when Israel would have a king ruling over them. Moses' intent here in Genesis 36 in this passage is simply to point out that the descendants of Esau are actually prospering in power and in the fulfillment of God's promise long before there ever was a king that arose from among Jacob's descendants. Moses, who's writing this, respects what has come of Esau, and you can feel that in his words with admiration. He's saying Esau had kings before we did. Observe what is said in verse 40 and following. And some commentators suggest that whenever you see the word chief in verses 40 to 43, that at least in some of the cases, you could replace it with the word clan. It may not be speaking of the chief himself, but of the clan, uh, the name of the clan. Look at verse 40. It says, now these are the names of the chiefs. Or you could say clans descended from Esau according to their families and their localities by their names. Chief or clan, Timnah. Chief, Alva. Chief, Jetheth. Chief or clan, Ohalibama. Chief, Elah. Chief, Penon. Chief, Kanaz. Chief, Taman. Chief, Mibzar. Chief, Magdiel. Chief Iram, these are the chiefs of Edom, or these are the clans of Edom. That is Esau, the father of the Edomites, because Esau is Edom. According to their habitations in the land of their possession. Notice how the land of Seir is now referred to as the land of their possession Speaking of Esau's descendants, God wanted Esau to have this region south of the Dead Sea. And Genesis 36 is the story of how this land became Esau's and how Esau superseded the native Horites and became the father of the Edomite people who were a thriving society in Moses's day. All in all, Genesis 36 tells the story of Esau and his descendants rise to dominance in a fairly clinical way. Uh, But you can be sure there was a lot of intrigue and battles and politics that figured into Esau's rise to domination in this region over the native Horite people, especially in the early going. In fact, we get a glimpse of this. Later in Deuteronomy 2, verse 12, which gives us this brief statement. Listen to this. The Horites formerly lived in Seir, but the sons of Esau dispossessed them and destroyed them from before them and settled in their place just as Israel did to the land of their possession, which the Lord gave to them. Again, notice that expression, the land of their possession. Canaan was the land of Israel's possession, and God intended that the region of Seir be the land of Esau's possession. And this is 
explicitly stated in Joshua 24.4. You might want to write that reference down. Joshua 24.4, where God says, and I quote, I gave Esau the hill country of Seir as his possession. I gave Esau, God says, the hill country of Seir as his possession, unquote. So this was clearly God's plan from the outset that this land belong to Esau. And in Genesis 36, God is regaling the children of Israel with this story of his prospering of Esau in Edom. Partly to cultivate in them an appreciation and a respect for Esau and his descendants. Later on in Deuteronomy 23, verse 7, God will say to the Israelites, You shall not detest an Edomite, for he is your brother. And here in Genesis 36, we see God taking an interest in Israel's brother and detailing his story here in great detail. One of the lessons that we should learn from this is that all these names in this chapter that I've read this morning that may seem tedious to us are not tedious to God. God's eyes have been upon each person mentioned in this chapter. And in his common grace, he's blessed them because of their connection to Abraham. A chapter like Genesis 36 is one of the Holy Spirit's ways of assuring us, as one writer has said, that God is forever concerned about every single individual. And we should let ourselves be instructed by this fact. Given what we read here in Genesis 36, it should not surprise us in the New Testament to hear Christ call us to make disciples of all the nations. It should not surprise us to hear or to read in the book of Revelation that one day gathered around the throne of God will be people of every tribe and tongue and nation, including the nation of Edom, descendants of Esau. We should also realize that this account of Esau's prosperity in Edom is intended to actually inspire a certain level of holy discontentment in the people of Israel. Think about the contrast that would prevail at this point of Israel's history as the original readers are hearing verse or chapter 36 being read. All these things about Esau recorded in chapter 36 were happening during the time period when Jacob was wandering as an alien in the land of Canaan, experiencing famine, and then going down to Egypt where the descendants of Jacob end up being enslaved and oppressed for hundreds of years. Meanwhile, Esau is prospering. In the race between the descendants of Esau and Jacob, Esau seems far ahead at this point. But guys, the race is not over. As one writer says, secular greatness in general grows up far more rapidly than spiritual greatness. On top of that, the work of God cannot be measured in a day or a year or even over the span of a century. In the end, the descendants of Jacob will rise. They will be delivered from Egypt. They will conquer the land of Canaan. A succession of kings will arise from the descendants of Jacob and ultimately the Messiah, the Messiah King, Jesus Christ, will arise from among the descendants of Jacob and bring salvation to people of every tribe and tongue and nation, including the descendants of Esau. The wheels of God's providence grind slow painfully slow sometimes, but they do grind. And in the end, God's will is done and his promises come to pass. In fact, I think Genesis 36 is intended to inspire such thoughts of anticipation in the original readers of Genesis who, again, are in the wilderness and they're about to enter the land of Canaan 
Israel has to be thinking as they're listening to Genesis 36 being read, they have to be thinking about that lame blessing that Isaac spoke over Esau. And yet, Genesis 36 chronicles what that lame blessing looked like in its unfolding, at least up to this point of history. In contrast to Isaac's blessing that he spoke to Esau, listen to what Isaac speaks over Jacob in Genesis 27, verses 28 through 29. Isaac says to Jacob, Now may God give you the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and an abundance of grain and new wine. May people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be master of your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be those who curse you and blessed be those who bless you. In Genesis 28, Isaac speaks another blessing over Jacob where he continues the blessing and says in Genesis 28, 3 and 4, May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he also give you the blessing of Abraham to you and your descendants with you, that you may possess the land of your sojournings, which God gave to Abraham. After reading Genesis 36 or hearing it being read to them, the people of Israel are supposed to be thinking, if what we just heard from Genesis 36 is the fulfillment of God's lesser blessing, Upon Esau in Edom, then what amazing things await us as we stand on the threshold of entering the land of Canaan. If Genesis 36 is the fulfillment of God's lesser promises to Esau, then what will the fulfillment of God's greater promises to us look like? Next week, we're going to go to Genesis 37. And we're going to take up the beginnings of that story. And it's not going to start off pretty, trust me. But in the end, it will take Moses 151 chapters spread over five books to tell the 400-year story that will leave the children of Israel as a mighty nation on the cusp of entering the land of promise. What he takes one chapter to do for Esau over that same span of time He will take over 150 chapters to tell the full story of what he will do with the descendants of Jacob over that same span of time. Finally, in this chapter, we learn about kings in Edom. And Moses even mentions the coming day when there will be a king ruling over the sons of Israel. And one cannot read that without thinking ahead to the day when Jesus Christ, the ultimate son of Jacob, will be born king of the Jews. And in the ultimate irony of ironies, when Christ is born king of the Jews, there will be an Edomite king, a descendant of Esau, sitting on the throne over Judea named Herod the Great who was an Edomite, a descendant of Esau. And Herod will view the birth of Jesus as a threat, and he will take action to destroy him. R. Kent Hughes says the tragic poetry of redemptive history is this. It was an Edomite king, Herod the Great, who exterminated the babies of Bethlehem in his attempt to kill the king of kings. Even after that, Christ will stand before Herod the Great's son, Herod Antipas, another Edomite king, and he will be mocked and ridiculed by Herod and his men. And Christ will go on to die on a cross and bring blood atonement for sinners. And God will approve of his sacrifice on the cross and raise him from the dead and give him a seat at his own right hand in heavenly glory. So yes, Esau had his kings who descended from him, who reigned in Edom, one of whom bears the name Baal is gracious. But from Jacob's loins will come a king whose name is Jesus, 
whose name means Jehovah saves. And he will be full of grace and truth, and he will show us that Jehovah is the gracious one and ready to save all who look to him in faith. If you're here today and you've never put your trust in Jesus Christ as your king and as your savior, please believe in him today. Whatever you're looking to, to be your king, to be the thing that saves you, put that aside and look to Jesus and believe in him as your savior king. And if you do that, he will instantly save you, forgive you of your sins. He will make you a part of his family and you will come to know in your experience that Jehovah is gracious. And in the end, you will find yourself on the right side of history. In Psalm 2.8, Jehovah is speaking to his chosen Messiah King and says, Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. And one day Christ is going to return from heaven to earth and establish his reign over the whole earth as the land of his possession. And we're told in scripture that those of us who are saved by Jesus will rule together with him in his kingdom. We will be kings and priests in his kingdom. We will be chieftains who will reign with him for a thousand years. So let Esau have his heyday here in Genesis 36. The rest of Genesis and the rest of the Bible is the story of the unfolding of the kingdom of Christ and the blessing of being a part of that kingdom for all who believe in him. Isn't it great to believe in a savior like Jesus? Let's look to him and pray. Lord Jesus, we extol you as the king that you are. We stand in awe of your ways. We see how Esau got by far the lesser promise, and yet the fulfillment was, I think, better than anyone would have expected. And it's one of the values of this chapter is it causes us to look elsewhere in the Bible and to see all the promises that you speak to us as Christians and, and then to imagine, wow, what will the fulfillment of these end up looking like in their fullness? Eye has not seen, nor his ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. God, you can do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. And if you do all this for Esau, given the smallness of the promise given to him, what will you do for us in fulfillment of the amazing exceeding great and precious promises that you have given to us. We have much to rejoice in. But Lord, some of us need to learn patience. Some in our church are going through a season of famine, a season of oppression. They see those that are not even believers in you that seem to be soaring and flying high and prospering. And yet, they're not. Just like Jacob's descendants would have observed during this heyday in Edom's kingdom. Lord, just help us to look to you. Help those who are going through seasons like this to look to you and to trust your providence. You are always doing a million things. And even during the times of famine and oppression, you're, you're purifying and you're seasoning and you're making ready for whatever it is that comes next. 
but help us to trust you in such seasons and to allow them to make us better and not bitter, to deepen our trust in you. We would allow you to do your full good work in us so that we are ready to be used by you when things may change. And even if they never change in this life, we know they will in the next life. And in the meantime, may we say with Job, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. We stand in awe of your ways, Lord, and in awe of your word that is profitable to us at every turn. And thank you for what you have chosen to teach us from this chapter in the book of Genesis. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to give of our offerings to you, and we ask that you would receive these funds and do much with every penny that is given for the glory of Jesus. May we see, even in Genesis 36, your love for the nations and be thrilled to support missionaries around the world that can serve to tell the nations about our King Jesus and salvation through him. We give of these offerings to you, Lord, and we also give of ourselves to you and ask that you would use us even this week as we testify of Jesus to those whose paths we cross this week. We commit ourselves to you in the name of Jesus and all God's people said.